Morning Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 13, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Uganda's president calls for calm amid the spread of the Ebola virus. Countrymen and countrywomen, I would like to appeal to you to remain calm and follow guidance from the health workers. The World Health Organization is to try two vaccines for the rare Ebola virus strain. Greenpeace Africa is disappointed in Kenyan President William Ruto over proposed natural gas pipeline. Nigeria says flooding has killed more than 500 people and displaced 1.4 million. Refugees seek legal assistance in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Chad's military leader names a new prime minister. You know, according to his speech on the Saturday, he said that he will promote an opening government, so I'm not surprised. And girls in Cameroon call for an end to school shutdowns so that they can resume their education. The stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Uganda's president is calling for calm amid the spread of the deadly Ebola virus, which was announced last month. President Yoweri Museveni says people should beware of misconceptions and traditional beliefs and healers that can easily spread the deadly disease. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakarinji had more from Kampala. For the second time since the outbreak of Ebola, Ugandan president Yoweri Museveni addressed the nation on the measures aimed at preventing its further spread. He said the government has set up treatment centers in high-risk areas, including districts where the disease has been confirmed. He said the government is intensifying contact tracing to treat those who have the virus. Museven spoke in both local dialect, Luganda, and English, emphasizing the need to seek conventional medical care when people have or are suspected of having Ebola. You can't be in a shrine or in your brother's house and you think you will get the, the, the attention, the care the support that you will get in a government hospital. How will they control the temperature? How will, how will you get intravenous fluids? And, and of what type do, you, do, do they know? Uh -huh. And who will be doing that to you safely? Because by touching you, they are endangering themselves, even if, they, even if they had the capacity to, to give you intravenous. Last month, Uganda confirmed the outbreak of Sudan variant of Ebola. The disease affects both humans and primates. It manifests itself with high fever, severe headache and muscle and joint pain. It also leads to body weakness and fatigue, sore throat and loss of appetite. A person with Ebola may also experience abdominal pain, diarrhea and vomiting, sometimes blood at later stages of the sickness. The Sudan variant has a mortality rate of up to 50%. As in previous address about Ebola, President Museven said the situation is under control. Countrymen and countrywomen, I would like to appeal to you to remain calm and follow guidance from the health workers. I have seen on the TV that the, uh, the, the people are bringing some vaccines. Now, those vaccines, I, I, I have not talked with the minister, but I think they should go to the health workers first. Meanwhile, stop shaking hands. Ruth Jane Acheng is Uganda's Minister of Health. She confirmed the country had received Ebola virus vaccines donated from the United States and the UK. 
These vaccines have already undergone research for efficacy and safety. We are continuing with research because we want to understand how long they protect. That is a question that must be answered. And every opportunity we get, we need to harness it. At least 19 people, including health workers, have so far died of the disease, according to Uganda's Ministry of Health. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, suggest several ways to avoid the disease. They include avoiding contact with blood and body fluids of persons with or suspected of having the Ebola virus, not attending funerals of those who have died of the virus, and avoiding exposure to some wild animals such as birds, forest antelopes, and primates. For VOA News, I am Gume, Davis Ruakarindi in Kampala, Uganda. Uganda and the World Health Organization are planning to try out two vaccines to curb the Sudan strain of the Ebola virus. The disease has so far killed 19 people and infected at least 54 in five districts in Uganda. After meetings in Kampala, the WHO's Director General described the new outbreak as troubling. Halima Atumani reports from Kampala. Uganda hosted ministers from 11 countries in an emergency one-day meeting Wednesday to align their preparation for and response to Ebola outbreaks and agree on a strategy for collaboration. Speaking to journalists after the meeting, Dr. Jen Rutha Cheng, Uganda's health minister, said the department is expecting two different types of vaccines for the Sudan virus of Ebola currently circulating in Uganda. Both vaccines, according to the WHO, are pending regulatory and ethics approvals from the Ugandan government. Acheng says the vaccines, which are expected to arrive in the country next week, are in clinical trials. One Oxford, manufactured in the United Kingdom, and the other Sabine, manufactured in the United States of America. We are getting small doses but the manufacturers are quickly manufacturing more. Uganda reported the Ebola outbreak on September 20th. The epicenter is the Mubende district west of Kampala, with one death reported in Kampala itself. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said that although the outbreak is troubling, it is not unexpected. Tedros says the primary focus now is to rapidly contain the outbreak to protect neighboring districts as well as neighboring countries. The WHO urged Uganda's neighbors to increase their readiness to respond rapidly and efficiently if needed. Dr. Ahmed Oguel Omar, the acting director general for the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says African countries need to change the way they do things in times of outbreaks. He said this includes strengthening institutions dedicated to health emergencies, strengthening the health workforce, local manufacturing, and having action-oriented and respectful partnerships. The WHO has released $2 million from its contingency fund to support Uganda's health ministry and an additional $3 million to support readiness in neighboring countries. Oguel says such funds need to be prioritized. It is not true that we don't have money and it is not true that African countries are broke. It's an issue of prioritization of the resources that you have. And then when partners bring their support, what is it supporting? Is it supporting our priority or is it supporting a priority of the partner? Then rationalization of our budgets at national level. 
will create a situation where the funds for public sector are going into our priorities. The Sudan Ebola virus was first reported in southern Sudan in 1976. Several outbreaks have been reported since then in both Uganda and Sudan. The deadliest outbreak in Uganda was in 2000 and killed more than 200 people. Halima Othmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Greenpeace Africa is expressing disappointment with Kenyan President William Ruto's decision to implement the proposed estimated $1 billion natural gas pipeline from Kenya to Tanzania. The initial agreement was signed last year between then-President Uhuru Kenyatta and Tanzanian President Samia Suluhu Hassan. Following his election, President Ruto announced that completing the pipeline was among his top priorities to cut the price of cooking gas. During a visit to Tanzania this week, Ruto and Suluhu Hassan reaffirmed their commitments to expedite the project. Greenpeace Africa campaigner Claire Nasike tells me her organization is dismayed by President Ruto's decision to abandon his support for renewable energy in favor of fossil fuel. She says the pipeline will put the livelihoods of millions of people at risk. President Ruto, uh, when he was being sworn in, he actually reaffirmed Kenya's commitment to transition to 100% clean energy by 2020. And it's been barely three months since he made that statement during his inauguration. And he's coming about with a plan to sort of build the natural gas pipeline, which goes against his statement on, on the transition to clean energy by 2030. And when we look at um, Kenya's energy generation, about 89% of um, the electricity used in Kenya is generated from renewable energy sources. I'm sure Greenpeace Africa is aware of Russia's war on Ukraine and the effect that it has had on the global energy supply. President Ruto is now president of Kenya. Is it not reasonable to conclude that uh, the pipeline is intended to meet the energy needs of uh, his country? Kenya is actually home to one of the largest wind power farms in Africa, that is the Lake Trukana Wind Farm, that has the capacity to generate about 310 megawatts, which are able to power about a million homes. So the question is why the rush to invest in the natural gas pipeline when we have options such as the Electrocana wind power farm that are able to provide energy that is clean for Kenyans. Why not invest in other renewable energy sources that can be able to provide any energy? If Kenya and Tanzania are to focus on investing in renewable energy resources as you suggest, instead of fossil fuel, what are some of the renewable energy resources that you think are available to Kenya and Tanzania? For instance, geothermal energy is one of the best forms of best load renewable energy with an estimated potential of about 17,000 megawatts. So why can't these two countries then put in place the right regulations that can make sure that these renewable energy sources then are able to provide the required energy by the two countries and in return eliminate any further explorations or any further investments that are likely to be detrimental to the environment. You also said this pipeline will put the livelihoods of millions at risk. How is this possible? And uh, can we say that the pipeline 
will help improve the lives of Kenyans and Tanzanians through the revenue that it might generate. We speak as Greenpeace Africa on the concern that Mombasa and the Rislam are surrounded by the Indian Ocean. And the communities that live around the Indian Ocean depend on it for their basic needs. So what will happen to these people once the exploration of the natural gas begins? How is their environment being to be affected? What are the likely environmental impacts that are, are going to arise from the exploration of the natural gas by Kenya and Tanzania? Claire Nasike is Greenpeace Africa campaigner. She was speaking with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 13. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Chad's military leader, Mohamed Idris Debe, yesterday picked opposition leader Saleh Kazebo to be the country's next prime minister. Kazebo came in second in Chad's 2016 presidential election and was a staunch critic of the late president Idris Debe. Earlier this week, Chad's first prime minister under Debe resigned. Clement Abaifuta is president of the Chadian Association of Victims of Political Repression and Crimes, which looks into abuses committed by President Isin Habri. He tells me he's not surprised by Kazebo's selection because President Mohamed Idris Debe has said he wants to form a national unity government. According to his speech on the Saturday, he said that he will promote an, an opening government, so I'm not surprised. But I have a, a little fear because, you know, that man was throughout deep in the hard opposition. So let's say that uh, we need that. He will lead an open government. So I, I think that uh, things will be quite good, I think. You are talking about President uh, Mohamed Idris Debi, is that correct? Yes. So you are saying perhaps Chadians might be willing to give this appointment a chance because the president wants to bring about an open government. Yes. What do you have to say about Kazebo himself? I mean, he was in the opposition. Yeah, he worked in the hard opposition, you know. And, uh, you know, when he decided to join the military's politics to work, on the way to bring back the rebels. I wish and I I mind that one day he will be coming to rule the government. Now, president or, or military leader, it's confusing to say president because he's not elected. Idris Debi, the young man, what do you make of the transition process that he has proposed to return the country to civilian rule? You know, as the first hand of the transition did not, uh, you know, reach the satisfaction of the population. So I think that the, the second hand of this transition might to be focused on what people wish and people wait to see. So I think that they have to work on and to applicate 
all the resolution of the dialogue. You mentioned the dialogue. Some members of the opposition are not participating in the dialogue. How do you think it's going? I think it's not quite, you know, uh, generally, when you go on the project, all the opinion will not agree with your, but I think that uh, they have to work on to come all the opinion, the national opinion together to, you know, to work on the development of uh, our of country. I think the challenge is too much. And I think that both, they have to work to carry the country toward the coming election. Now, back to Ket Zabo himself, the new prime minister. He came second in the 2016 election. Do you think by accepting to be the prime minister, is he preparing himself to run again in 2024? I cannot dot on because as the chat say that, the candidate of election is open. It's not like they said first that within 18 years, they will carry out of the civil government. Now, they didn't do that. Kebzabo himself, maybe he come to, you know, agree with Mamad Kaka to facilitate or to prepare his one coming election. Clement Abayfuta is president of the Chadian Association of Victims of Political Repression and Crimes. He was speaking with us from the Chadian capital, Unjamina. Nigerian officials say at least 500 people have been killed and 1.4 million displaced in the worst flooding in a decade. Officials say floods have affected nearly all of Nigeria's states and 90,000 homes have been partially or completely destroyed. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The Permanent Secretary of Nigeria's Ministry of Humanitarian Affairs and Disaster Management, Nasir Sanibwaza, announced the latest figures during a media briefing in Abuja Tuesday. He said more than 1,500 people were injured and that the disaster had an impact on farmland across all but five of Nigeria's 36 states. It's the worst flooding to be recorded in the West African nation since 2012. Authorities say heavier than normal rainfall and the release of water from a dam in Cameroon are to blame and have promised to help communities cope with the impact. Isa Garba heads a community of farmers and fishers in Agabroko in central Kogi state. He said the floods wreaked havoc on his people. Okay, okay, I'm telling you. He says, I know the figure is small, but if you ask me, we're more than 700 here. Our village was completely submerged. We lost farms of rice, corn, everything, even animals. About 20 people died. They were mostly kids. Thousands of people from Garba's area and neighboring villages are taking refuge on dry land several kilometers away from their homes. But there's limited access to basic amenities there and the government said has yet to reach them. Sani Guazo said authorities have approved emergency action to mitigate the impact of the flood nationwide. He said a national emergency response plan will take into account other communities not directly hit by flooding. 38-year-old Fatima Adamu, who lost her livestock, is among those who say they need help. She says, while we were trying to escape with our animals, many of them died in the process. I personally lost 15 goats, 
the remaining ones are even falling sick from the pressure of the whole thing, as you can see. The National Emergency Management Agency says that so far, it has reached some 300,000 people. Meanwhile, Nigerian weather forecasters have warned that more flooding could be in store. Timothy Obizu for VOA News, Kogi State, Nigeria. In the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, families of Rwandan refugees living in Goma are demanding justice for their loved ones. They say there are many refugees in Muzenze, the city's central prison, who have no access to legal representation. Reporter Zaneb Neti Zaide has details. Some are thrown in jail and have no one to plead their case. Their families say they cannot visit them either because of the lack of means or because of financial hustles imposed on them by the police at the prison gates. Uwasejan is a Rwandan refugee whose brother-in-law has been in Goma prison for more than six months. She says that he was falsely accused of rape and is incarcerated but has no one to plead his case because she says finding the fees to pay a lawyer in Congo is difficult. Jackson Kulihoshi Musikane is a member of Kojeski, a civil society organization that works to defend the rights of refugees. He said that his association has listed at least 37 refugees from several countries who are being held on various charges. He asks humanitarian organizations to act quickly because these refugees seem to have been forgotten. Lawyer Iragi Mpunga says the situation facing refugees in the Democratic Republic of Congo is a breach of national and international law. He says that there is a special agreement between nations, the Convention of 1951 on Refugees, which guarantees them the same rights as citizens when they are already on the territory of the states which welcomed them. The DRC has signed the convention and therefore it's a manifest violation of the rights of refugees that the government does not provide them with access to legal assistance. With mistrust and misunderstanding between Rwanda and the DRC, the first victims are those who have fled one country to take refuge in the other. This is a case of Rwandan refugees living in the DRC who are often wrongly accused of being behind the insecurity in the country. Amzanem Netizaidi in Goma for VOA News. And that's it for this Thursday, October 13th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our TV shows.
Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton in Washington saying, have a great day, and please be safe whatever you do. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. The roots and ramifications of anti-regime protests in Iran. Protests against the death in police custody of a young woman, Masa Amini, have captured the world's attention and are growing and spreading across Iran. Women and girls are at the forefront of these protests, but hundreds of thousands of Iranians of all ages and backgrounds are joining the opposition. The implications of anti-regime protests in Iran this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next, a conversation with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who specializes in authoritarian movements around the world. Ben-Ghiat will discuss the significance of the recent elections in Italy, which brought to power a political party with roots in fascism and Mussolini. She will also discuss threats posed by gains in far-right parties in Sweden and Hungary, as well as the erosion of democracy in the United States and Brazil. Next on Press Conference USA, on The Voice of America.